This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you today? Great to have you along. Today, the big East Coast grain handler Grain Corp has chosen Western Australia as the place to increase its oilseed crush capacity to feed the renewable fuels market. Tell you more about that just after half past 12 today. And shortly, the cray fishing industry is nervous about extension plans for a marine park off the state's west coast. Details on that in a few moments' time. First, though, the federal government has decided to cut funding to three major road infrastructure projects in regional Western Australia. And the state transport minister is not happy. In fact, she's deeply disappointed. A total of five WA projects have been cut, amounting to around about $300 million. Rita Safiotti says that's not fair, especially considering WA delivers massive revenues to the Commonwealth. The minister says the state government will step in to fund the local projects on the chopping block, including the Great Southern Secondary Freight Network. That was supporting local governments in particular for upgrading uh, roads to support the movement of agricultural produce around the Great Southern. Not high value, but it's something that we will step in, the state will step in to fund. What what sort of money has that's been about eight million dollars there? I oh. think from the state, yeah, from the Commonwealth. Okay, yep. Marble Bar Road upgrade. Would you say that was a priority? Yeah, it is. So Marble Bar Road upgrade, Moran Rock to Mount Holland, and Binjara heavy haulage deviation. They're um, three big projects that have been cut. Are worth about three hundred million dollars in Commonwealth funding. Now, what we're saying today is that we will step in and we will deliver those projects. Um, the Marble Bar Road, Moran Rock Road. They were both going to be jointly delivered with the private sector because they're basically helping support some new resource projects. So we'll work with the um, with the with those companies and um, step in to help support those projects. On those two projects, the companies are also contributing a a percentage. So we're going to work with them. And Pinjara heavy haulage deviation. That's probably the major one which they've. Um, they've withdrawn funding for. We're still committed to that project. We have, I think, $50 million committed over the next four years. That's already going through an approvals process. So we'll commit to that project ourselves. And just if I go back to the Marble Bar Road upgrade and the, the projects associated to that, you said that mining companies, resource companies were also involved in funding that. Are you now going to ask them for more money? Oh, we'll be having negotiations. They're already contributing, as I recall. Marble Bar, they're contributing 50% of the funding, as I recall. So um, that's a public road, but also supports mining investment and also opens up access to some Aboriginal communities. So we'll have an engagement with them, but we're very keen to support uh, that project because, again, it's about supporting resource projects and jobs and also access to Aboriginal communities in that area. And the other one, the fifth one, is the uh, Maureen Rock, is more it? On, more on more rock, on rock yeah. to Mount Holland mm. Road upgrade again. Is that something you'll need to step in to complete? Yeah, we'll have to work with the mining company again on that one. Um, I'll have some conversations with them today. They're already again contributing a big percentage of that road project. And so both of those projects were innovative and we thought quite successful ways to deliver these projects where 
it was the company involved, the government and the state government, sorry, federal government, state government, working together to support these resource projects. And where the and the, those companies were going to take all the price escalation or risk of delivery. So we thought it was a good value, you know, value for money for taxpayers. Um, now that the feds have pulled out, that we'll have to renegotiate that with those companies. All the projects we have on our books are projects we've committed to. So that why that's why we feel an obligation to step in and make sure they happen. So do you think the federal government's got it wrong here? Because obviously it's not a priority for them. Well, I'd say this that. We've managed our pipeline of work effectively and we've continued to re-cash flow and, in a sense, change timelines to make sure we had the capacity to deliver. And the other point I make is our projects aren't projects worth tens of billions of dollars like Over East. So, for example, one project alone in South Australia, they've increased the, or the Commonwealth share of the cost pressure, of the increase in the cost, is $2.7 billion. Now, we don't have those big projects. So my point I was constantly making to the federal government is our projects are smaller. They're far more manageable. We can sort of, we could move one for six months a year. We can manage the pipeline. Please don't cut any project. And many of our projects in regional WA too. Now, they might not have, in a sense, the volume of commuters that some of the roads over east do. But they're essential links in the national highway network. They facilitate new resource development or agricultural projects. And we believe, because of the size of WA, we're 30% of the national highway network. And the fact that many of these roads support new projects that help the federal government bottom line, the company tax uh, royalties and other fuel excises, that we could have managed these with co-op, with um, sitting down and going through all these timelines. That's why we're deeply disappointed. We don't believe that these projects needed to be cut, in particular because of the economic value they bring to the state and the Commonwealth. Are you disappointed that the federal government didn't listen to that argument? Yeah, I am. In WA, basically, there are hundreds of new projects that people want to invest in. You know, we have such a strong economy, not only the iron ore industry, lithium, all the rare, rare um, minerals. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of projects, hydrogen. There's a lot of infrastructure demand to support the next wave of economic development. And that's why we have to keep focused on the next wave, whether it be lithium projects or other projects to help support our economic growth. Is this fair, Minister? Well, I don't think it's fair. No, it's not fair because, look, the reality is every state and territory has pressure delivering infrastructure projects. We've done it sensibly. The past two budgets, we've sat down and we've worked to manage the timeframe of projects. We've pushed projects out to ensure that we can manage them, manage them well in the state. We've had cost pressures, but we haven't entered into $10 billion road projects. We haven't done that. you know. And so over East, where they've entered into $10, $20 billion projects, and they increased by 30 or 40%. That's multi-billions And so you feel like WA is being punished for that? Yeah. I do. Well, I think we've been not fairly treated, but also the fact is, is that our projects in WA are fueling resource projects that deliver massive revenue to the Commonwealth. So the Commonwealth budget last year ended up a lot better than they predicted because of the royalty income and the company tax paid 
by the big Western Australian resource projects. I think we have to accept that that's what's happened. And then to punish the state that's actually helping the bottom line for $300, worth of, $300 million worth of cuts, I think didn't need to happen, could have been avoided, and we could have managed it through. So I'm very disappointed. She is not happy, is she? Transport Minister and Deputy Premier Rita Safiotti with Nadia Mitsopoulos on the morning show earlier today. And if you're in one of the regions where some of these projects are located, it'd be great to hear from you and get your reaction too to the federal government pulling out of the funding of these projects. But as you heard from the minister, the state government will step in. A lot of the projects in association, a joint sort of funding uh, arrangement with some of the companies too. So the projects are the four main ones, the Great Southern Secondary Freight Network, the Marble Bar Road Upgrade, Moorine Rock to Mount Holland Road Upgrades, and then the Pinjarra Heavy Haulage Deviation Stages 1 and 2. They're the projects that the federal government has pulled out of, but the state government prepared to step in. What do you make of the Commonwealth pulling out of those? Let me know on text 0448 922 604, especially if you're a frequent user of those roads in those regions. On the text from Phil, uh, hey Belinda, pretty simple, Elbow will get no votes from WA. The text 0448 922 14 past 12. Glenn Yogi Kendall is the owner-operator of the Kendall Trucking Company. He says the federal government's decision to pull the pin on funding for the Great Southern Freight Network is in no way a shock. <laughs> because, uh, well, in my opinion, we're in a recession. In my opinion, the economy's taken a dive. So in my opinion, that it's definitely the government will start cutting back on spending. And if it doesn't fit their realm... With this current government, it seems like they're not going to do it. It's, it's hard to watch because we we survive down here in the Great Southern by by being very very good at what we do in the Great Southern, and to, to not have proper freight routes and it, it makes it very very difficult to complete our job. We flog the gear, the everything everything gets harder because the cost of everything is through the roof. So the wear and tear on your vehicle gets harder because there's no no money being allocated for decent freight routes. So it's just something we've just got to deal with as an owner-operator and an independent in the Great Southern. It just is what it is. We can't change it. and Unfortunately, yeah, it's not so much of a surprise. How is it being in the trucking industry at the moment? Uh, anyone in the trucking industry has got to have pretty, pretty thick skin at the moment. We're getting flogged from pillar to post. There is industry, and it is a, an average year in farming, so it'll be an average year in transport. We are slowing down. There is a pullback on some jobs. I've found resistance in, you know, you quote a job and the job doesn't happen. So there is people tightening their budgets and it's to be expected. The cost of everything has skyrocketed. So the cost of everything involved in running a truck is exactly the same. It's hurting out there and, and, and industry slowing down. Transport industry is slowing down, but it is hurting out there. It's the start of, well, start of a recession. People are pulling out of the industry. If you had an option to sell up and get out, you probably would at this point in time. With us, we just got to be very, very focused on the business, very, very focused on where we put our money and where we where we go and what we do in jobs. You've just got to be smart about where you go, smart about who you're working with and smart about the outcome of your, of your job. Now, you mentioned that's a very expensive industry at the moment and as you can imagine with the price of fuel at the moment, but are there any other big costs that are contributing to this high price of production? 
the cost of fuel is ridiculous. I, I cannot, for the life of me, understand how we're paying this much for fuel. We, we, fuel used to be a third of my running cost, now it's over half. The cost of fuel should be the number one objective for this current government to get under control instead of just keep smacking, smacking uh, transport operators again and again and again. But tyres are up, the price of oil's up, the price of the service is up, everybody's gone up. Everything is, is on a scale, but, but definitely the fuel is the hardest one we, we swallow in here now, and we've got to take it. People say put your rates up. People say just cover it with a fuel levy. It doesn't cover it. How much is the state of the roads costing you? We maintain a vehicle to a roadworthy condition, but the roads are not at a roadworthy condition for trucks and transport. So the cost of, of what it is, we, we're constantly doing maintenance. We're constantly looking at stuff. The roads are terrible. They're a lot better. I'll tell you what, though, they're a lot better than the eastern states. And I'll, is one thing, and I've spoken about this on the ABC before, but at least the roads in Western Australia are better than the east coast. They're in a really, really, really bad way over there. Is that how you see it? Are the roads here in Western Australia better than what you've seen over in the east? Or let me know the um, the shape, the standard of the roads here in Western Australia. What have you seen in your backyard? The text 0448 922 That was Glenn Yogi Kendall, the owner-operator of the Kendall Trucking Company, and he was speaking to Sophie Johnson. On the text from Macca, read the federal funding cuts for roads. That's what happens when you have a state government crowing about multi-billion dollar surpluses all the time, yet expecting the feds to pay the bills. This from Les at Gero. Uh, Belinda, thanks for another great hour. It's easy with the roadworks. Keep several hundred mil of our money and get on with them. Road train access to Mushay for the Northern Cattle Stations would be a good idea. That text is 0448 922 19 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. The cray fishing industry is nervous about extension plans for a marine park off the state's west coast. Its concerns are very similar to concerns raised here on the Country Hour yesterday by Shadow Fisheries Minister Cole de Grasse. The industry is worried the state government is overstepping the mark when it comes to protecting the environment at the expense of commercial and recreational fishing. At the moment, the Marmion Marine Park covers almost 10,000 hectares between Trigg Island and Burns Rocks off the coast from Perth. Under a plan announced early last year, that park will triple in size, extending up the coast. Matt Taylor is head of the Western Rock Lobster Council and is bitterly disappointed by the consultation process. We participated in the Community Reference Committee process uh, late last year that uh, concluded with a recommended plan uh, from the CRC to the Minister for Environment uh, at the start of this year uh, or early this year. Uh, And we followed up with DBCA a number of times throughout the year just to ask where things are at, but we, uh, yeah, we're not exactly sure. We don't know whether a map has been supplied to DPED, but we are aware that the Minister for Fisheries hasn't received um, advice yet from DPED. 
the Lobster Council, Wreckfish West and Wafik wrote to DBCA about a year ago, is my understanding, and you wrote as advisory groups representing the majority of stakeholders in the proposed marine park expansion areas. And you raised a number of concerns with the process that DBCA had undertaken and you said in that letter you felt misrepresented, disrespected and completely ignored by the DBCA and its planning process. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've not had any evidence or justification to the contrary. Uh, we've provided information into that. We engaged in that process with full integrity and goodwill. Uh, we didn't feel that that was reciprocated uh, by DBCA in their facilitation of what should have been an independent community process. Why um, not? What happened? Uh, well, to us, it felt more like DBCA had worked with um, the University of WA to predetermine an outcome and that the CRC process that we engaged with was really just a process to deliver that predetermined outcome. So it didn't matter what people said or presented in that process. Uh, it, it was um, intended to produce something that was predetermined with uh, with uh, the science SAG or particularly um, representatives of, uh, of UWA. And that predetermined outcome, the sticking point or the, or the really important point here is the location of these no-take sanctuary zones. That's the bit that you're, you're concerned about. Absolutely. Um, from our perspective, we support marine parks. We think they play an important role. Um, what we are concerned about is uh, sanctuary zones, where they are and how large they are, um, because they ultimately remove resource access from our license holders, from our fishery license holders that pay an annual fee to uh, to enter the fishery and uh, and catch lobsters to provide the local and, and international market. So sanctuary zones mean that uh, a fisher can no longer go into that area. Uh, and these are fishers that have been fishing in those areas for generations, for decades. Um, and so if a fisher is removed from an area, they need to then fish somewhere else. So it has this Constantina effect on others that are fishing around them because it concentrates fishing efforts in other parts because they can't access those sanctuary zones. And we should be clear that no formal final plan has been released for public comment, but you've obviously been involved in the consultation process. So from what you've observed, what's been the basis of where uh, some of those sanctuary zones may be located in that final plan. What's what's the basis of, of where they're physically drawn on the map? Uh, well, this is our issue, Joe. There is no evidence or justification for those sanctuary zones. Uh, we've been asking throughout the whole process that they... That, and in fact, it's an instruction from both ministers to the planning process facilitated by DBCA that um, there needs to be evidence and justification for the marine park planning outcomes. And so we've been asking from day one for evidence and justification for removing the resource access from our fishers as well as all the recreational fishers that enjoy what is a metropolitan marine park with heavy usage. And to date, we've received no evidence or justification um, this planning process was meant to be based on habitat and biodiversity. 
uh, we know through our world-class MSC certification, the environmental risk assessments that we need to do as part of MSC, we know that our fishery doesn't impact uh, on habitat, uh, even up in the pristine Abrolhos Islands with the corals. So we know we don't impact on, on habitat and therefore the recreational rock lobster fishers wouldn't either. Uh, so from day one, we've asked for this evidence and justification uh, for removal of resource access, but it's never been supplied. Um, in fact, we had one example where a transect of sanctuary zone, so a, a band of sanctuary zone from the shore uh, out to the uh, out, outer extent of the marine park was moved between CRC meetings by DBCA and the only reason it gave for moving that um, marine, uh, that sanctuary zone was so that it aligned with a bush forever site on land. So there's absolutely no habitat or biodiversity justification for the location of that sanctuary zone. It was a bush forever site. That's how absurd this process became. You've been um, arguing these points with DBCA. Do you feel that you are being heard and you, what's your relationship with DBCA like now? No, we don't feel that we have been heard. Um, we wrote those letters and got inadequate responses back. In fact, they haven't really answered the very poignant and detailed questions that we've asked them about the process and the principles that underpin it. Uh, and we haven't had answers to that. Um, and we haven't had answers to evidence or justification for removal of resource access. It's meant to be based on biodiversity uh, there is no marine biodiversity map at the start of this process that determined where we should locate sanctuary zones. It's done in a complete absence of marine biodiversity mapping. The habitat mapping, there is some, but it's not comprehensive. There's no uh, cultural awareness uh, mapping for land-based um, aspects of the marine park. It's just, it's done blindly uh, and it's, it's, um, completely unacceptable to the existing uh, stakeholders that uh, use those waters. The Marmium Marine Park is a second park which uh, basically requires consent or, or a sign-off from the Environment Minister and also the Fisheries Minister. And we have heard some details of some fairly tense communication between DPIRD and the DBCA, the two departments that sit underneath those ministers. The the contents of that communication was pretty blunt from DPIRD's perspective, and we heard details of that in Parliament this week. Were you surprised when you, you reflect on that relationship between those two departments, which you, you could see is pretty strained when you look at that communication? Uh, not surprised, no. I mean, we, we experienced it throughout the process. I think part of the problem is that DBCA is ideologically driven um, and D and DPIRD uh, does its aquatic resource management based on ecosystem-based uh, fisheries management. So we take into consideration the whole ecosystem when we're looking at, for example, the harvest strategy of Western rock lobster. So it's not just the rock lobster. We look at the, at the environment, we look at um, bycatch, we look at um, the general uh, ecosystem. So in effect, it's two departments that speak different languages. And um, yeah, I just don't think DBCA understood 
what language Deep Herd was um, communicating in when we represent, you know, the world-class fisheries that we have. Matt Taylor, he's the Chief Executive of the Western Rock Lobster Council and he was speaking to Joe Prendergast. 28 past 12 on the text, uh, this from Peter in Albany. Colin de Grusser gave a good and long interview yesterday and yet ministers release a statement and sometimes a highly controlled short press conference. Do any ministers ever give an actual old-fashioned interview these days or are they playing tactical dodgeball? Thank you for that, Peter. Uh, Interestingly enough, we have requested an interview with the ministers in charge of the two departments involved in the formation of these new marine parks. The lead agency is the DBCA, so the request has been made for an interview with Environment Minister Rhys Whitby. And the proposed South Coast and Marmion marine parks will also need to be signed off by Fisheries Minister Don Punch, who has declined our offer of an interview. But Don Punch has just finished a media conference, so at the end we did manage to ask him if he feels he and his department are being sidelined by the DBCA in the planning and the consultation process. Uh, The Minister for Environment and myself uh, have a very close working relationship. Departments have robust conversations with each other. Uh, That's normal. It certainly was the case when I was a CEO in a development commission. The important thing is the advice that I receive from the agency uh, and the maps that um, determine my decision in relation to concurrence on the marine parks. Don Punch was also asked if he's ever seen the draft plan and map for the South Coast Marine Park. No, I haven't. I'm waiting for advice from my department, um, including the maps, and then I'll consider the issues associated with concurrence. Fisheries Minister Don Punch. It is half past 12. Time for an update from the newsroom with Jonathan Beale. Thanks, Belinda. The WA government says it's been punished for mistakes made in other states. The comment comes after a federal infrastructure review recommended stripping funding from several major road projects, more than $400 million previously earmarked for regional road upgrades in WA will be reallocated. The Premier, Roger Cook, says his government will make up for funding shortfall. The US President Joe Biden says he's had a productive meeting with his Chinese counterpart, which will see the restoration of high-level military-to-military communications. It's the first time the two leaders have had a face-to-face meeting in just over a year, and the first time President Xi Jinping has visited the US in six years. Mr Biden says despite the difficulties in the relationship, he believes the two countries are on a more sure footing. And the United Nations Security Council has voted in favour of a resolution calling for urgent and extended humanitarian pauses and corridors throughout the Gaza Strip for a sufficient number of days. Twelve members voted for the resolution with abstentions from the US, UK and Russia. The resolution also calls for the immediate and unconditional release of all Israeli hostages held by Hamas and other groups. Morning is Belinda at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that. And a few texts about that story that Jonathan mentioned and we were talking about earlier in the hour too, about the road funding, the uh, some big projects that the federal government has said it's not going to fund, comes to around about, I think it's around about $400 million. Anyway, the state government is going to step in 
and fund those projects that the federal government has cut. But in response to that on the text, Bell, there is a difference in the roads in WA. Perth and South are way better than the roads north of Perth. Nothing will change. And this too, the roads are not made to carry the trucks of today as they are three times as heavy as the roads. Thank you, Neil. And this too, the South Coast Highway from Albany to Jerramungup, the worst I've ever seen. Very dangerous. That text is 0448 922604. Still to come, it's off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. And also a South Australian-based hay company that sources, well, across three states, including here in WA, has just struck a deal worth $100 million to supply Oaten hay to China. We'll look at that shortly. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Joey Rawson. Take us for a look around the southwest land division. What can you see this afternoon? Yeah, so there's a little bit of cloud bell along the south coast, mainly east of Walpole, um, and it is starting to clear to the east as we track on for the next few days. So apart from that, there is really not much activity throughout the southwest land division. There is a bit of activity through the southeast of the state. So um, inland parts of the Eucla, there's a, a couple of thunderstorms that are firing off right now. But that activity is um, slowly progressing um, out of the state, across the border, and it's attached to um, that mid-level trough that uh, caused the thunderstorm activity over the last couple of days um, closer to the southwest land division. But um, as we move forward, Bell, we uh, we go into a quite a, a pattern that's not going to change much. Um, the only change that's really going to occur is it's just going to slowly warm up over the southwest land division um, over the next few days, and, and then it's just going to you know remain pretty much similar for many days. And we have this west coast trough that's going to remain offshore from the west coast, so we're going to continually drive these warm temperatures into the southwest land division and it's usually when that west coast trough moves inland we get that cooling go on but we're not seeing any changes with that we're seeing that trough remain um, near the west coast or offshore uh, for many days so um, it's going to remain warm to hot for for um, yeah well and truly into next week bell and then what can you see for northern and eastern parts of the temperatures going up in that area yeah, they they are. So um, through the Kimberley, we've got some storms at the moment through the north uh, eastern parts at the moment, and that'll continue through the afternoon and evening. And then that um, uh, storm activity will continue for tomorrow, uh, on Saturday, and then on Sunday and Monday, it'll start pushing it a little bit further to the west, so a little bit closer to that Dampier Peninsula. But what we have is um, our trough through the Kimberley is going to move closer to the coast, so that means the temperatures are going to rise. So through the southwestern parts of the Kimberley in particular, the temperatures are certainly going up and they're going up during the night as well. So um, we do have the risk of a bit of a heat wave um, that will start to um, occur from basically Friday. So, and that'll cover that Dampier Peninsula, Broome area. Um, so yeah, hot, hot conditions uh, starting and staying around for, for a number of days, Bell. And what, what are we talking, Joey? Like uh, above 40? Yeah, well, yeah, well and truly above 40. So, um, yeah, temperatures 
above 40 and also like 42s and overnight temperatures around you know your 25s 26s so um yeah so you don't get that um cooler night for the bodies to recover so that that's the concern with the heat waves that we've got okay thank you for that and then the warnings this afternoon uh, a strong wind warning or a couple of strong wind warnings for the Gascoyne coast and the Geraldton coast and also the Lewin coast. And we will have a heat wave warning going out shortly. So, yeah, keep an eye on that when it comes out. Will do. Thank you, Joey. It is 23 to 1. Richard Hudson in the studio with the rainfall figures. Yeah, in the northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, Flora Downs, sorry, Flora Valley had 11. Marion Downs had eight. In the Pilbara, nothing recorded. In the Gascoigne, Bulga Downs had 12. Nothing reported in the interior. But then in the goldfields, Laverton topped it with 28. I can't remember the last time Laverton topped the rainfall figures. In the Euclid district, Euclid itself had 15. Air, nine. Forest, 16. Mundrabilla Station, 12. And Red Rocks Point had 19. Nothing recorded on the islands again. And then in the entire Southwest Land Division forecast districts, the most rain recorded was five mils at the Duke in the southern coastal region. But uh, for some grain farmers in the more northern growing areas, harvest is actually over or almost over. Rose Lennox is working on a farm at Pindar, which is about 400 k's north of Perth. And this week, they've just been trying to get the crop off as fast as possible. It's been okay. It hasn't been the greatest year. Like our year last year was better, but um, yeah, like this year we didn't get the rain we expected. So um, it looks like you're getting some now. Yeah. <laughs> it's always the way, isn't it? Yeah, it always comes later in the year. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. So, Rose, the other day you um, you were saying that you you saw a pretty spectacular show when you were trying to harvest. Yeah, definitely. We were sort of coming to the. Um, we've been watching it come over all afternoon and. Yeah, we sort of finished just as it really come over and, yeah, we were watching it that night and there's lightning everywhere. It was quite spectacular, really, yeah. How much lightning are we talking about here? Are we talking about a little bit or was it like a, a strobe show? Oh, sort of between. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah, there wasn't a lot, but there was there was just enough sort of to, yeah, notice it. But, yeah, it was very nice. No fires? No, 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 okay. luckily. Very, yeah, very good that we didn't get any. But a, bit, a bit of rain? Yeah, we did, yeah, yeah. So we didn't get much that night, but the next day we got, um, the next morning we got a bit, so that was nice. Yeah, yeah about 10, 11 mils, okay. so, yeah. yeah. Didn't dampen the harvest too much? No, no, no. The week we had Sunday off and, yeah, started back in on Monday. So what we're doing here now is we're screening the grain that we harvest. Um, so it goes into a bin and then into a screener and it rolls it around sort of thing and um, puts the good sized grain into the big bin and the seconds off into the other one. Yeah. So. Have you got much more to go to harvest? No, we've only got about a paddock and a half left, so yeah, we're not far from being done. So what, another another day do you think? Oh, probably a couple of days, couple yeah. Days. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, cool. yeah. And then what happens then? Drinks? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, time for tidy up I suppose. <laughs> Flies get a bit intense sometimes, but... Other than that, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, okay. It's really good. What's the thing that you love most about it? Oh, everything, really. I don't know. I don't think I could choose a um, single thing I like. Like, I just like seeing the country go from, you know, from one stage to the next. Like, there's a lot of preparation in it. So it's, it's good to see the crops go from these little tiny seeds to, 
you know, something that can go around the world or wherever it goes. Farmhand Rose Lennox, who works on Mike Kirkman's family farm near Pinder, she was talking to Chris Lewis about the harvest and those storms that have been rolling in throughout the week. 19 to 1. Well, the big East Coast grain handler, Grain Corp, has chosen Western Australia as the place to increase its oilseed crush capacity to feed the renewable fuels market. The grain handler already has an oilseed crush at Pinjarra, just south of Perth, and Umurka in Victoria, and plans to increase the oilseed crush to as much as 1 million tonnes per year. Grain Corp Chief Executive Robert Spurway revealed the plan today after announcing a full-year profit of $250 million off the back of last season's big harvest. Robert Spurway says WA is a perfect fit for its oilseed expansion plans. We have strong relationships with a number of growers in Western Australia as part of our export program to our international customers across the globe. We also have an existing oilseed crushing facility at Vinjara in Western Australia. Really the strategic reason for Uh, looking at the opportunity to build additional crush capacity in Western Australia is the fact that there is a significant surplus in canola seed produced, and that's currently exported to customers overseas. Uh, By our estimates, about 75% of that oil seed exported ends up in renewable fuel manufactured in overseas markets. We're excited about the opportunity to uh, work with the demand side and the, the fuel companies to build that demand in Australia Uh, provide greater demand and opportunities for growers, uh, create investment and jobs for Australia as part of a future build as we work up the feasibility and the business case. And just finally, looking forward to the current harvest that's underway at the moment, you've received about 3 million tonnes of grain into your network. What are your expectations for this season? Uh, We haven't set a specific forecast uh, other than if you look at the ABARES forecast, it's about uh, 20.8 million tonnes. They'll obviously be updating in December as they get more confidence around what the actual crop is. We typically expect uh, something in the order of 40% of that crop to come into our sites during harvest. It's pleasing to see prevailing weather conditions are providing ideal conditions for growers to harvest. We'll be wishing them all the best as that harvest uh, continues and certainly gets underway in Victoria in particular. Grain Corp Chief Executive Robert Spurway with Elsie Kennedy, 17 to 1. A South Australian hay company that sources hay from three states, including here in Western Australia, has struck a deal worth $100 million to supply oaten hay to China, which follows the recent easing of trade conditions. Belco Australia signed the deal with Chinese partner Bright Farming at the recent China International Import Expo. Over the next decade, Belco will export around 200,000 tonnes of Australian oat and hay to Bright Farming for the dairy industry. CEO of Belco, Rob Lawson, says the deal is an extension of an existing business relationship. It was a show of you know, a very good faith sign between both that we signed the 10-year agreement because prior to us losing access to China with hay, Bright were a very significant customer of ours who were taking around 20,000 tonnes a year. And so this agreement is that they would continue to take 20,000 tonnes a year for the next 10 years. But with the restoration of trade, um, that was something that they wanted to do and we were 
certainly very happy to to be part of and, uh, you know, actually, to be honest, quite honoured to be part of. What will they use this oat and hay product primarily for? Uh, Absolutely feeding dairy cows is the primary function and, you know, the the fibre. So they feed a lot of, you know, grains or or loosened hay or alfalfa hay, which, you know, has a higher protein content. But our oat hay has fibre and it has a direct correlation with animal health as well. So we fit that important part in the feeding ration. The dairy industry, you know, globally, I think is probably stretched and pushed a bit at the moment. And so, you know, we're fortunate there's a need for the feed because, you know, obviously cows need to be fed, but it would also be fair to say that probably each each of the Asian, particularly our main Asian markets, the dairy industry is feeling, feeling pressure right now. Uh, and so people really want to get value for the feed that they're putting in, the money they're spending on the feed, and they want to get the value for that. And I think our Australian hay with our clean and green and certainly non, non-GM products are making a difference in the markets. Away from China, what are other markets like for, for Bauco? Is there other opportunities elsewhere like this one as well? So look, our significant markets are Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, China, and, and then sort of developing markets in Vietnam and the Middle East. And look, just fractionally starting a little bit of business into Indonesia. And what has the hay season been like for, for Bauco? So this season's been particularly good across all three states. So I think we've had very little rain. Um, probably most of our most of our growers would have appreciated a bit more rain to finish their grain crops. But from a hay point of view, it's made for very good haymaking weather. And we've been fortunate across all three states to have somewhere close to average yield. So, you know, we have a presence in Brookton in Western Australia, Bowman's in South Australia, which is right near Balaclava, and then Raywood, which is quite close to Bendigo and Victoria. Is there a particular state that will provide the most hay for China or do you sort of spread it out across the three? We do spread it out, but probably the majority might come out of South Australia into China, but there will be, there will be some from each state. CEO of Belco Australia, Rob Lawson with Brooke Nindorf. This is the Country Hour and it's 13 minutes to one. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. The Israeli military raids Gaza's largest hospital, releasing video it says shows Hamas weapons and equipment inside, which Hamas denies. Ankle bracelets and curfews, part of emergency laws being rushed through federal parliament to help monitor more than 80 people released from immigration detention. And pumping the brakes, the federal government scraps 50 road and rail projects across the country after major cost blowouts. Soon heading off to Mount Barker for the results of today's cattle market. And uh, speaking of cattle prices, as you well know, they have been on the slide this year. And that's evident in the half-yearly financial results out today from Australia's largest beef company. AACO says the value of its herd has fallen by $175 million in just six months which is a drop of 20%. To be fair, though, the benchmark Eastern Young Cattle Indicator fell more than 47% in the same period. CEO David Harris says AACO has faced challenging market conditions, but its branded beef sales have held strong and the company still has an operating profit of over $30 million. Whilst you know, we've taken a significant hit on that statutory live price. That's not actually realised, right? It's it's book value. What is really positive is we've kept OP up. We've got positive cash. You know, it's it's starting to illustrate or it is a clear illustration now that the strategy being branded beef is 
largely decoupling us from, you know, the live price fluctuation. And so largely I think it's a really strong result uh, in what's pretty difficult conditions. The value of the herd has taken a knock. Have I got this right? It's fallen $175 million in just six months. Yeah, correct. That's, uh, that is uh, an accurate depiction of it. Uh, it's a big number. But what's really important there is to note that it's a statutory piece. So it's, it's not realised. Uh, that is just a factor that being a publicly listed company, we need to value these assets. Um, and so that happens. So we, we haven't realised that as a loss. It's, a, it's just a function of how the business needs to operate. Yes, it's, um, you know, it's a fair hit to the stat piece. But up until that time, we, we haven't actually realised those. So that's the whole strategy behind why we build out the branded beef side of things is so that we don't have to necessarily realise those, those market prices. We can take that beef through our supply chain and, and move it into our branded beef stream where we, we feel we can get considerably better margins for it. And the price that you are getting for your Wagyu meat, from what I can tell, it's sort of barely changed year on year. It sits at over $20 a kilo, which I assume is a good result in the climate. Yeah, look, we're, we're certainly happy with it. Uh, as we note, it's down 5% um, on this time last year. But in a, in a market that does have, you know, the large supply out there at the moment with those herds, US is still still liquidating herd numbers, uh, Korea the same. So in, in a market where supply is so prevalent, I think for us to be able to hold our price largely flat on, on the period, I think is, is an excellent result. The US is currently Australia's number one export market for beef. Where does it sit for AACO at the moment? Look, North America in general, we kind of put uh, Canada and the US together on that is a, is a really significant market for us. It's a, it's a great opportunity for us to keep building. They're obviously a, a very large beef consumer. Uh, the Wagyu industry over there isn't as developed as it is in Australia, so we see a significant opportunity for us there in the future to continue to build relationships, you know, primarily with chefs and, and distributors around moving that product around. North America in general, but very important market for us. Is it your number one market though? No, Asia on volume and price is still our largest market, but North America is right there behind it. Branded meat sales to Europe and the Middle East, they're on the up as well. But sales into Australia are down 20% year on year. How do you think that should be viewed? Yeah, so that's a that down 20% is a price mix performance. So that takes to, into account... Uh, the value of, of what we sold in Australia, but also the mix of, of product. And so what happened in Australia is we've moved some lower value cuts out of other markets to, to keep the price tension there and move them back into Australia as we could still get a higher price for them in Australia than some of those other markets. So, uh, yes, it looks negative on, on the face value of it, but I think we've actually performed really well in Australia and I've spoken a few times about where we move product around the world, depending on where things are at and different economies and consumptions at different times. And it's just a factor of we keep doing that. We shuffle product around our kind of distribution ecosystem um, where we need to, to extract the best value and, and margin for the business. So you'll continually see movements around, you know, three, three or four big big markets for us and, and it's just a function of where the value is at at the time but we keep working you know as I said in the presentation we've got some excellent relationships with some really iconic venues and customers in Australia so 
I couldn't be happier with our relationships that we've built there. Now, you lead Australia's largest cattle company and you've watched as cattle prices have fallen all year. Do you think the bottom of the market has now been reached? Yeah. <laughs> uh I suppose we'd all we'd all like to think we have. Uh, who knows is the is the answer to that one, mate. I think uh, I, I'm not a punter on that. W- what we try and do is keep focusing on the things we can control. So we keep trying to manage cost of production. We keep trying to be a low cost producer, increase productivity, and and keep trying to lift the bar on where and what we can sell the product for. What live prices do will be largely out of our control. But if we get everything else right, we'll we'll have a business that. When life prices do come back, and I'm sure they will, uh, where they're ready to make make the most of that opportunity. On another topic, AACO has been doing some dry land farming trials in far north Queensland. Could you tell our audience sort of what you're doing, what you're growing, what it all looks like? Yeah, for sure. So we've got uh, we farmed around six thousand hectares in in the Gulf area of Queensland this year. Um, so we're just finishing that. That program now, uh, that was a mixture of a few things. We did some dry land sort of forage cropping that we that we grazed out to young weaner cattle. We also did uh, we made a lot of hay, um, which we used throughout our own properties and and sent throughout the business. And we also grew uh, a substantial amount of chickpeas up there. And so it's kind of part cash, part product that was utilised within the business, but you know, some really excellent results this year that will certainly be um, be helping the bottom line of the business out into the future. And just finally, abattoirs are making some good money at the moment and Livingston near Darwin sits idle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know you get this question every time, but if it's not worth opening Livingston now, what is AACO waiting for? Yeah, good question. I think we're waiting for uh, for a lot of things there. When we sort of suspended Livingston, um, there was a few challenges there with that that business case, and and we're working through improving those in order to go again. So look, we we continue to kind of prudently uh, keep it in that suspended state. We're always actively looking at um, opportunities for for the site, whether they be directly as as a processor or other things as well. But uh, never say never. Matt, we continue to work on opportunities for the site, for sure. David Harris, he's the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Agricultural Company, speaking to Matt Brown. Five minutes to one. Stefan Vogel is Rabobank's Head of Research and he's been doing a little crystal ball gazing on cattle prices too. He thinks export numbers will continue to struggle due to congestion in key markets big problem we have in, in many of these export markets, even so our beef exports actually look pretty good. They are um, rising every month in the last few uh, months, but a problem really is that our key destination markets are a little bit jammed and, uh, and congested. So looking at inventories in the likes of Japan or Korea, um, they are at rather high levels. And um, that has to do on the one side, well, there's been quite a bit of product flowing into those markets. On the other side, the problem is clearly also we need to look at economic conditions and uh, the economy, as you know, is not going very well in many places of the world. 
and if people need to make a decision um, what they eat and where to spend their money, that's where also we see a little bit of a slowdown on some of the consumer fronts. So with that, um, looking in 24, we feel that the economic conditions will remain challenging um, in many countries of the world, that especially those that are consuming our beef and importing our beef from Australia. Um, it might get slightly better than 2023 was, but not anywhere back to where we need to be. So on that side, we fear that uh, those congestions in those demand margin destination markets for us will remain uh, for beef in place for a little bit longer. We need to work through those. But for now, um, we think we have probably reached the floors in, in beef prices and uh, might be slightly optimistic that prices could somehow turn around. Uh, but it is very hard to forecast on the beef side these days. Robert Banks, Head of Research, Stefan Vogel, speaking to Madeleine McCosker. Three minutes to one, speaking of cattle prices, making our way now to the Mount Barker sale yards for the results of today's sale. 1,138 head of cattle sold today, so that's about 700 less than last week. Meat and Livestock Australia's reporter Tracy Kilner has been at the sale. Hello, Tracy. What happened to the prices today? A run of excellent quality wiener calves saw prices lift, with heavy wiener steers selling to 274 cents and heifers to 188 cents a kilo. All other categories followed the trend with processor demand for prime lines while plain store pens were harder to move. Heavy cows were up 10 cents and bulls gained 20 cents a kilo. Lightweight wiener steers sold to 286 cents while the heavier weights made from 200 to 274 cents. Wiener heifers sold with the biggest gain returning 100 to 188 cents. Yearling steers sold from 150 to 250 cents, remaining firm, and yearling heifers were up, selling from 120 to 184 cents a kilo. Grind steers gained, returning 170 to 186 cents. Heavy cows were up, selling from 112 to 152 cents, while store cows returned 70 to 90 cents. Heavy bulls sold from 112 to 152, and the lighter weights made 124 to 152 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Tracy. Just recapping the lead story today that the cray fishing industry is nervous about extension plans for a marine park off the state's west coast. The industry worried that the state government is overstepping the mark when it comes to protecting the environment at the expense of commercial and recreational fishing. And you heard from... Matt Taylor, who's the head of the Western Rock Lobster Council. And you also heard that we've requested interviews with two ministers. Uh, firstly, Reese Whitby, the Environment Minister. We haven't heard back on that request at this stage, but we have requested an interview with the Fishing Minister, Don Punch, and he has declined that interview. He did say, though, in a short uh, response during a press conference today that he hadn't seen the draft map for the South Coast Marine Park yet. And in response to that, Nicola in Witchcliffe says, those short answers from Don Punch, it's pretty sad that one of the ministers in charge has not bothered to demand an in-depth map of the affected areas. I wonder if he thinks about it whilst enjoying his fresh fish dinner. Thank you for that, Nicola. And then on the roads, I agree with Yogi. Our roads are 100% better than New South Wales and Victoria. Good to talk to you today on the ABC. It's time for the latest ABC News, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.